0: Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to god and not to us let me pray father we ask that as we consider your word this morning as we look at what your spirit has superintended by the hand of the apostle paul for the sake of your body the church we pray that the head of the church your son jesus christ would be exalted That your spirit would be at work in us, your body, to cause us to trust evermore in the power of the spirit to work among us through the clear, open statement of the truth. That we would become spirit-dependent people, a spirit-dependent church who sends out spirit-dependent ministers and missionaries. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by addressing an error in missions understanding that seems prevalent. And this is like a little bit of a prolegomena, a sort of first words I want to get before I jump into this text. There's, a, there's an error in missions that, that seems to be growingly prevalent, uh, um, and that's this. We, we have a kind of unbiblical idea that ministry here and missions abroad are different In more dramatic ways than is the reality. There are differences. Please don't misunderstand me. There are differences in circumstantial matters. But there are similarities in essential matters. Or those matters of the the essence. Let me tell you some of the differences in circumstances. For example, there's a difference in language and culture. There are differences in the government and the economy. There are differences in the spiritual and religious ideas that are prevalent among the people to whom we send missionaries. There are differences in climate. There are differences in ethnicity. There are differences in architecture and technology, and I can go on and on with those sorts of differences. But those are circumstantial differences. They don't get at the essence of the thing, the similarities are in the essence. What are the similarities? We have the same triune God who is creator, sustainer, and redeemer. He's the same everywhere you go. Man is the same everywhere you go. Every man on the face of the earth is an image-bearer of God who has fallen in Adam, rebellious, spiritually dead, and condemned. The person and work of Christ is the same wherever you go. The person... And work of the Holy Spirit is the same wherever you go. His work may differ in degrees. He may be more actively at work in one particular area toward the salvation of many, causing revival. But it does not differ in kind. He's always doing the same thing. The sufficiency and clarity and authority and necessity of the Word of God are the same wherever you go. So doctrine, what we teach and believe, piety, how we live, and practice, how we worship and proclaim, are essentially the same everywhere, though we may have some differences in circumstances that need to be addressed. I say that because there was a lesson I learned as a church planter when I first began this church that helped me see the similarities between the problems of the church here and many of the problems we now see in modern missions practices. When I was a young um, church planter, I met with, and I think Jason was there too, right? Were you at the lunch with Bob Brady? Met with a man named Bob Brady. Um, Bob was a man who lived in Bakersfield the great majority of his life. Um, He was a church growth consultant. You guys ever heard of that? A ministry expert. A man who was an expert in teaching you how to grow a big church. He did that for much of his career. um, And then he eventually repented of that, actually, and approached those churches and asked them to help if, if they would take his free service to put them on a more biblical path in ministry. He told me that none of them took his advice. But as a church growth consultant and as a man who then repented of it, I was quite keen to want to sit down with him and ask him about church planting and pick his brain about that. And we had lunch at his house and, and he told me the story of when he was an early church growth consultant, how they went, um, he and his team. He was um, a, affiliated with Fuller Seminary and their, um, church, their ministry of church growth. Um, which was from Donald McGavern and some of these famous names from the past. And he and his team went to various churches that were exploding in size across America. And they would go to the churches that were growing rapidly. And they would do entire surveys of what's causing the growth. And they would try to study the church and figure out why is the church growing so much. One of the church they were, churches they were fascinated by, he told me about, was John MacArthur's church. If you're not aware, John MacArthur became a, a pastor in the Sun Valley 50 years ago still preaching at the same church for 50 years. It's amazing all by itself. Became a pastor there in a, in a church that was not very large. And that church throughout the 70s and 80s began to explode in size. And it went to be a church of some 12,000 people, um, not including all the other things that were happening in his ministry. And so he said, Bob Brady said to me, we went to John MacArthur's church and we sat down with him and a staff and we asked him, why is your church, gro- church growing so fast? What's happening that's bringing about all this rapid growth? And he said, first John MacArthur looked at me and said, well, it ain't the punch and cookies, right? And then he said, no, seriously. What's, and you can imagine him saying that if you've ever heard it. But what, what's causing it to grow so fast? And he said, listen, I'm just going to boil it down for you. This is very simple. And he says, John MacArthur took his hand and pounded the de- his table and three times said, preach the word preach the word, preach the word. And he said, um, I walked out of that meeting with John MacArthur and said, he's so naive, he doesn't even know why his own church is growing. He said, brother, I, I came to better theological convictions, bi- more biblical convictions, repented of my sin. He eventually became an elder in the PCA. And he looked at me and he said, here's my advice to you as a church planter. Preach. The word. That lesson impacted me in my understanding both of ministry and of missions. Both. See s- systematic, methodical, patient preaching and teaching can seem like ineffective, slow and plodding work filled with sacrifice, suffering, and loss. It is so ordinary from the human perspective, so feeble and plain. It is not extraordinary and powerful and exciting from the human perspective. Yet we train our missionaries to spend years learning language and culture, living in difficult contexts and suffering, only to have them spend several more years slowly and systematically proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and teaching people toward maturity. And this approach, the approach we see with the apostles and our historic missionaries and pastors, is increasingly dismissed by many experts in missiology and in church growth ministry. Here are the objections I often hear. Isn't this all overly Western and overly authoritative? Isn't it old school and traditional? Like, that's inherently bad. Sorry, the older you get, folks. Haven't we found better ways to more rapidly catalyze movements? Aren't there better ways to multiply disciples? Does this approach really account for the felt needs of unbelievers, and does it really have an attractional power for seekers? Don't we know how to exponentially catalyze disciple-making movements? By the way, Exponential, Catalyst, and multiplier are all conferences offered to pastors, as well as I get, a, I get a thing in my email every week that's called Preaching Rocket, causing my sermons to blast off, right? And <laughs> I think to myself, my people are pretty confident they can blast off. They're just not so confident they can land. So maybe you should send me some other kind of advice. Anyway, I mean, Wikipedia found a fast way to spread information over the Internet very quickly. Can't we find a new way to do the same with the church, a kind of wiki church? That's an actual book, by the way. Isn't there some way to supercharge our ministry? How can we increase our speed and effectiveness and efficiency and power while also reducing our unnecessary suffering, our excessive training, and our long-time plotting in the work? Listen, I don't fault folks for having a sense of urgency and seeing unbelievers reached quickly. I also don't fault the loving desire to see as many people saved as possible. I don't fault the desire to eschew unnecessary suffering nor unhelpful and excessive training. But, folks, I do fault the unbiblical notion that there is some way around the apostolic doctrine and practice of using the ordinary means that God has given for ministry and missions. I do fault the unbiblical notion that there is some way to catalyze or make exponential, or multiply a movement of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in some people group or church through more modern or newly discovered techniques and methods. As a caveat, these methods come packaged generally in one of three ways. If you're in charismatic crowds, they say it's a new wind of the Spirit. If you're in non-charismatic crowds um, who aren't as biblically concerned, they'll package it as Well, one of many neutral methods that we can use because Scripture is not prescriptive on this. If you're in circles where they tend to care about the Bible quite a bit, they're going to package it as a new discovery of the way that we have understood the Bible incorrectly through our Western imperialistic minds. And social movement theory has now provided us this new interpretive grid to understand what the apostles were really up to. We just struggle to believe that the apostles did their work in this slow and patient manner. At times, the Holy Spirit blew, blew and many were saved. And something like a revival occurred. At times, the Holy Spirit worked less spectacularly. Some were saved. Some despised the apostles. And a mere church was planted there. The Holy Spirit blows where and when. He wills the holy spirit can do whatever he wants and the apostles knew this and they knew they had no power no power to multiply catalyze or exponentially bring about some movement the apostles knew they were given the ordinary means of ministry and god could do what he wanted when he wanted through the exercise of those ordinary means but they were responsible to this, the faithful exercise of the ordinary means. Paul was committed to the use of the ordinary means given him by the Lord, and he was actually, catch this, ridiculed and criticized for such a commitment. In fact, First and Second Corinthians, in many regards, is dealing with the ridicule and critique that Paul is getting, For his strong commitment to the ordinary means of grace. He was not usually drawing big crowds. He was being critiqued for that. He was not making big money. And that was actually a sign that he was a failure. His ordinary means were not accomplishing big crowds, and big money, his ordinary means were actually not even seeking either of those ends. He was seeking to be faithful and trust the Lord to do as he wills, and the men criticizing and ridiculing Paul believed they had found a better and more powerful means. They knew how to use soaring rhetoric, clever tactics, doctrinal sleight of hand, entertainment, and emotional manipulation to gather crowds and tithes and personal adulation. Paul referred to them as the super apostles, which sounds like a term dripping with sarcasm, does it not? And sadly, it's deeply troubling that many so called church growth experts, ministry experts, and missiologists sound more like the so called super apostles whom Paul combated then they sound like the Apostle Paul. And I want to look this morning at the contrast that Paul drew between his ministry and their ministry. So as we look at the text today, I want to look at really four um, sections of the text and under these headings, the method of ministry or missions, because I'm basically saying at the essence, they're the same, the method of ministry or missions two, the obstacle the obstacle in ministry or missions, three, the focus in ministry or missions, and four, the power in ministry and missions. So the method, the obstacle, the focus, and the power, and then I'm going to look at some quick implications. So let's look first at the method of ministry or missions to which the apostles were committed. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, one as we consider the method to which they were committed. 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Notice Paul's arguing that because he has this ministry, by the mercy of God, he does not lose heart. But what is this ministry? Look back at 2 Corinthians 3 and look at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now look down at verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it, in glory. What is this ministry? It is the new covenant ministry. The new covenant ministry is announcing that Christ has cut a new covenant in his blood in which men are forgiven of their sins and saved through faith in him. The new covenant ministry is that the Holy Spirit is powerfully attending the proclamation of that good news, giving new life and faith to Paul's hearers. So he has a ministry of the new covenant, a ministry of righteousness, a ministry of life, a ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this ministry of the new covenant, this ministry of righteousness and of life and of the Holy Spirit is not something that Paul is in and of himself sufficient for. This ministry is, notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God. God. What does it mean? Let's get to the root of that. I mean to have this ministry, the proclamation of the new covenant, the ministry of the Holy Spirit of life and righteousness by the mercy of God. Well, the Father elected him from before the foundation of the world. The Son purchased him with his blood at the cross. The Holy Spirit applied that gospel grace to him through faith by his powerful working. That's all the mercy of God, all of it. God not only gave him new life in Christ, but God also empowered him to the task of gospel proclamation. The Father chose him for the task, Galatians 1 tells us. The Son gave him as a gift to the church, Ephesians 4, 7 and following tells us. And the Holy Spirit gifted him to this end, 1 Corinthians 12. Thus he is not in and of himself worthy of the gospel he received, nor is he worthy of the calling to proclaim that gospel. Look, the fact that the word of God should be spoken by his unclean lips is pure mercy and grace. This is such a glorious ministry given to him by the mercy of God that he says, we do not lose heart. He is not discouraged from going forward when he suffers trials and persecutions and hardships. He is not wavering from his commitment to the ordinary means of grace when these super apostles come in speaking of their large crowds and successes and financial prosperity. He remains committed to what he's been given to do by the mercy of God. So what is that? What is that method that Paul has been given and to which he's committed? Look at 2 Corinthians 4.2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God now notice two truths regarding his his method one is the method he repudiates there is a method that Paul says we repudiate that method we refuse to participate in that method. We despise that method. And then two is the method he embraces. So let's look first at the method he repudiates. He has renounced it, says in verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. Now what is a disgraceful underhanded way? Well, it's the opposite. What he means is the opposite of an open statement of the truth. He's contrasting we renounce disgraceful underhanded ways with but we make an open statement of the truth. In other words, he's denouncing any method. Listen, he is denouncing any method that conceals the truth of Christianity. He is rejecting any method that keeps the whole truth of Christianity from the unbelievers whom you are trying to reach. Basically, he is repudiating any method that attempts to make Christianity more attractive or less offensive to unbelievers, any method that tries to reach them apart from openly telling them the truth. Paul adds clarity to the statement with the next sentence. Look what he says. We refuse, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We refuse to practice. That word for practice cunning is to walk in. It's the way we live or walk. We refuse to walk in a cunning sort of way in ministry, to practice cunning. They are not. What he's saying is, we refuse to be deceitful in our personal life. We refuse to be deceitful in our doctrine. Listen to how John Gill, an 18th century Baptist theologian and pastor, addresses what Paul and his missionary band were refusing to practice. Listen to what he says. They used no sly... And artful methods to please men, to gain applause from them, or make merchandise of them. They did not lie and wait to deceive, watching for an opportunity to work upon credulous and incautious minds. They did not, by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple, nor put on different forms or make different appearances in order to suit themselves to the different tempers and tastes of men. We see this kind of cunning among the super apostles in 2 Corinthians 11. So keep your hand in 2 Corinthians 4 and look at 2 Corinthians 11. We're going to see this cunning source as first Satan, but it shows up in the ministry of the super apostles, which is the context in which Paul's addressing. 2 Corinthians 11 in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. What Paul's saying is, listen, I'm going to sound foolish to you right now, so bear with me in that. I want you to understand why I'm so deeply passionate about this. I feel a divine jealousy for you. By the way, there is godly jealousy right there. There's ungodly jealousy and there's godly jealousy. And I feel a godly jealousy for you why since i betrothed you to one husband to present you as a virgin pure virgin to christ he's talking about here your spiritual purity before the lord but i'm afraid that as the serpent deceived eve by his cunning same word as second corinthians 4 and verse 2 that cunning as the serpent deceived eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to christ for as someone comes And proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. You put up with it readily enough. You just kind of let it go. You tolerate it. Indeed I consider. Look what he goes on to say. That I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. See the super apostles with their method were actually changing the message. Those two things are necessarily connected. And they were practicing cunning. Just like Satan took God's word and used it against Adam and Eve by practicing cunning, so these super apostles take God's word, the gospel, the person and work of Jesus, and use it against God's people to confuse them and to deceive them. Paul goes on to say... Uh, more strong words about these super apostles as he goes on to deal with them. Look down at verse 12 of chapter 11. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Hear what he's saying about these false ministers? They're taking God's word, they're tampering with it, they're practicing cunning, they're twisting it just enough to gain crowds, and as they do that, to gain money, as they do that, they are just like the serpent. Just like him. And their boasted mission is not on the same terms as ours. They're false and they present themselves like angels of light, folks. They never present themselves with pitchforks and horns. I've come to do you evil, right? Okay. They present themselves as true ministers, just like Satan did, and they deceive people. Paul saw that these super apostles were changing doctrine. Their method of cunning and tampering with God's word caused them to alter the message just enough to be acceptable to people. The open statement of the truth was not going to win them large crowds. So they devised a way that could win them large crowds. And given the real problem with man, the only way they could win big crowds, if you will, is through, through their own efforts, was to change the message. That's what Paul means when he says that he refuses to tamper with God's Word. Look at that language in verse 2. To practice cunning or to tamper with with god's word to tamper is is to really make false through deception or distortion to twist it in some way to distort it in some way to deceive in some way so as to make it false that way you can tamper listen you can tamper with god's word by leaving important doctrines out of your teaching i'll just skip over that stuff you just tamper with god's word you can tamper with God's word by de-emphasizing important doctrines in your teaching. We tend to de-emphasize the ones that we find unpleasant. Hell, wrath, justice, sin, rebellion. We love to exchange out something like, I'm broken for I'm rebellious. Because when I'm broken now, it's, it's harm that's been done to me. When I'm rebellious, it's sin I've committed We love to just smooth that stuff right out and de-emphasize it. And when we do, we change the message. You can tamper by changing doctrines altogether. There's a lot of ways to tamper, folks. You can exchange law for gospel. You can preach a gospel that doesn't transform us to want to keep the law. There's a lot of ways to tamper. And Paul and his missionary band refused to practice this. They refused. John Gill commented on the apostles' faithfulness with the word. Listen to what he says. They did not corrupt it with human doctrines or mix, mix and blend it with philosophy and vain deceit. They did not wrest the scriptures to serve any carnal or worldly purpose, nor did they accommodate them to the lusts and passions of men or conceal any part of truth or keep back anything which might be profitable to the churches. But the super apostles became like salesmen of the word of God. They wanted to close the deal. They could not accept rejection and obscurity. They longed for masses and for money. After all, if you have big crowds and big offerings, then clearly the Lord is at work, right? They had become peddlers of God's word. They They were hucksters. They were pragmatists. They had found what worked and they packaged it and they merchandised it. They knew what wooed crowds and they unabashedly used it. But Paul refused to go down that road. He refused to go down that road. Look at Second Corinthians two seventeen. Two seventeen. For we are not, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We speak in Christ. We're not peddlers of God's word. So what did Paul do? What was Paul's method or practice? As men of sincerity, they spoke in Christ. Look back at chapter 4 and verse 2. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He declared the truth. He declared all the truth. He declared it openly. He sincerely and honestly told the truth of the gospel to men. He did not occlude the difficult truths. He did not try to avoid being called out of his mind or foolish. He actually says, if I'm out of my mind, it's for Christ and for you. He didn't attempt to curry the favor of men. He embraced being insignificant, despised, and rejected. He knew that humble and sincere pastors, please hear this. Our society is so twisted this. Humble and sincere pastors, humble and sincere missionaries, openly declare the truth of the word of God with little regard for the approval of man. Thus he preached Christ and him crucified, knowing that this was foolishness to those who were perishing, but the wisdom of God and the power of God to those who were being saved. See, Paul knew what the real obstacle in ministry is, and it is not. The real obstacle is not the truth being openly taught. That leads to my second point, the obstacle in missions or ministry. What is the obstacle? What is first the method is to openly state the truth. The obstacle is this. Let, let, let Let me try to find it this way. What were the reasons that others thought Paul failed? Why, why do people think Paul failed? Because, because he's being accused in, in Corinth of failing. You, you want to know the main charge against Paul? He wasn't good looking and he wasn't rhetorically powerful. But look, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He actually straight addresses this. Look at verse 10. For they say, this is speaking of the super apostles, and frankly, many in the Corinthian church. Many in the Corinthian church, they say his letters are weighty and strong. In other words, a good writer. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Do you hear what you said? What's the critique about him? He's kind of physically unattractive. And he's not particularly charismatic in the pulpit. He just lacked that crowd-pleasing charisma. His speech didn't pack that rhetorical punch. He refused to obscure the doctrines that people do not like to hear. Physically, he wasn't someone you really wanted to look at. He openly spoke of a crucified Christ who was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So to the world, Paul was unattractive personally, Paul was unattractive rhetorically in the way he spoke, and Paul was unattractive doctrinally, what he was teaching. Like they, Paul had nothing going for him from a worldly perspective, you understand that? It's, it's bad enough that your doctrine is hard for people to take. It doesn't it seem compounded from a worldly perspective when you're not very good at public speaking, or at least you refuse to be good at public speaking in Paul's case, I think. And then let's compile it with one more thing. Nobody wants to look at you. Right? Paul knew that many in the Corinthian church thought these were the reasons his ministry was not as crowd-pleasing and popular as the super apostles. He knew it. In fact, he loads this into an implied objection that he answers in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. So let's look at that implied, the, the, the objection he's answering, which is an implied objection in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 4. So look there, 2 Corinthians 4 and verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Note what Paul's saying: there are clearly people who are rejecting the gospel; they are not seeing the truth; they're incapable of seeing the truth. And he is committed to openly stating the truth, and his his message is being rejected, and he's being rejected. And Paul is here answering an implied objection. What's the implied objection? Listen, Paul. That stuff doesn't work. It takes too long. It's not winning over these kinds of people. Those doctrines are offensive. No one wants to hear that. You're able to be a good rhetorician. We're reading your letters. They're weighty and strong. So why, when you get up, do you refuse to be a good rhetorician when you speak? It's like you're adding insult to injury. They don't like your doctrine they don't like to look at you, and you refuse to speak in a rhetorically powerful way. What's your problem? That's never going to win people. I remember when I planted Sovereign Grace, I was asked by some pastors what I hoped to do. And I, I told them, say, I want to preach the Word. I want to teach it with depth, draw out the theological implications, deal with error, and apply The truth to people's lives. I want to help people understand law and gospel particularly. I want them to be unabashedly, I want to really unabashedly teach every word of the Bible. I want to pray a lot. I want to read the Bible a lot. I want to administer the sacraments or the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I mean, people were aghast when I said that stuff. I remember the looks and the replies. Here's here's what I, I was told. People will never come to that There are a lot of things in the Bible that people just don't need to have preached from the pulpit. That stuff isn't practical. It doesn't help people with their daily lives. You'll just chase folks off. I didn't know if they were right or wrong. I didn't care. I didn't want to pastor a church where I couldn't do this. (laughs) But do you hear where we assume the real problem lies? Where do we assume the real problem lies? We assume the problem lies in the Word, that it lies in the truth, in the doctrine, in the gospel, rather than the real problem lying in the hearer. We speak as if the problem is with gospel doctrines or the Word of God. But the fault is not in the gospel doctrine, nor is the fault in the clear preaching of the gospel. The fault is in the hearer. The gospel is an offense. But the gospel is not an offense because the gospel fails in some way. The gospel is an offense because the human heart is sinful. It's glorious good news, but offensive to those who are perishing. That's why the gospel's foolishness to unbelievers, but the wisdom of God to those who believe. Listen, when someone hates the light... The light does not thereby become impure or darkened. Paul tells us what the actual problem is. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel is not the problem. Those who are perishing is. Look what he goes on to say. In their case, in the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world, that being Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, the blinded minds of unbelievers is the problem. The active deception of Satan is the problem. We must pray that the Lord remove that blindness and preach so that the Spirit might work to allow them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There is no technique There is no method that we can find to shortcut the real problem. The real problem is that men are spiritually blind because they're dead in their sins. And thus we cannot lose focus on what the real problem is, nor on what the real solution is. And that leads to my third point, the focus of ministry or missions. So we have the method, the obstacle, and now the focus of ministry or missions Look at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4. Look at this focus. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. See, I don't have to win you over. I'm not proclaiming me. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, Paul knows that men are lost and blind and dead. Thus, Paul knows what his focus must be. He must proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. He is a servant of Christ's church in just that way. He serves Christ's church in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. This is like a summary statement, if you will. It's a way for him to capture all his doctrine of the gospel in one phrase. I preach Jesus, the God-man, the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God who lived perfectly for us and kept the law in every regard and was tempted in every way yet without sin, who died on the cross for me, who took the penalty for my violation of the law upon himself, who resurrected from the dead for us, who was vindicated before all in his resurrection as holy, innocent, pure and undefiled, who ascended to the right hand of the Father for us, where he rules and reigns forever, where he is coronated his king and who sent his spirit to us to give us life. He, that one I preach, he is Savior and he is Lord. I preach him. I am absolutely committed to knowing nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I avoid any method. Listen to this. I Avoid, repudiate, reject, steadfastly am against any method that commends me to you. You know, my life is not the good news. That's why we have to eschew this statement, preach the good news always, or gospel always, and, and if necessary, or when necessary, use words. What are we talking about? How do you preach the gospel without words It's good news you proclaim. Your life is not good news for anybody. Do you hear that? For anybody. And your friends know it, they all know it. You preach the good news because it's about someone else outside of you, named Jesus Christ, who is Savior and Lord. So we preach Him. And we avoid any method that commends ourselves to people in that way. We commend ourselves to people only as mere servants of Christ. Who commend Him to you. And I commend Him to you by proclaiming the gospel to you. And Paul preaches Christ to them. Look what he goes on in verse 6 and says. For God, here's why he preaches Christ to them. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's referring you back to Genesis 1-3. God spoke Light be, and it was. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the God who created all things and who at creation spoke, let there be light, is the same God, the same God, who spoke into our hearts, into our dark hearts, and said, Let there be light, so that we know, so that we know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? The miracle of your new birth, of your seeing Christ for who he is and believing in him is equated for Paul to the miracle of God creating light in the first place. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who makes the Father known to us. And apart from knowing Jesus, we can't know the Father. And apart from the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit bringing light into our darkened minds and hearts, we cannot know Jesus Christ as Lord. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve three that no one can confess, can, is able to confess Jesus Christ is Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mean you can't mouth those words. He means you can't know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. So just as God supernaturally created, so he must supernaturally make a new creation of you. And he does this by the Lord who is the Spirit. Do do you hear the connection between ordinary means proclaiming, openly stating the truth, And extraordinary work, God, supernaturally illumining your mind and heart. God, supernaturally making you a new creation. The ordinary means is used by the Holy Spirit for an extraordinary outcome. Now it's true, not everyone will believe, many will perish. The gospel will remain foolishness to many. They will not be able to discern the things of the Spirit of God apart from the work of the Spirit. To them, to many, we will be an aroma of death and not of life, and we have zero control over that. Zero. Zero. Are we really committed to that? You openly state the truth, and you have zero control over whether people believe or reject the gospel. I, I don't know that we believe that. You know how I don't, how, how I, why I question whether we believe that? Because we think, if only I was more articulate then I would tell people the gospel. If only I knew how to answer all the objections I know the smart person is going to have, then I would tell the gospel. If only we could bring in this very influential, well-spoken person, then people would believe the gospel. If only I just knew the right method, the right way to do it, then people will believe the gospel. We don't really believe. We have zero control. Zero. Openly state the truth, and the Holy Spirit is the one who will shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into their hearts and minds, not us. So we preach and we pray. We don't look for new methods that are more powerful than preaching and prayer. We faithfully preach and pray. And that leads to my fourth point, the power in ministry. The power in ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. If you haven't gotten the point of what the power of ministry is yet, here we go. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, we're jars of clay, and the treasure is the gospel. Please note the incongruity there. Who puts treasure In a jar of clay. Jars of clay are common objects, even objects used for dishonorable purposes, like holding refuse. Did you just catch that? They're not worthy of themselves of holding any great treasure. They're weak and they're breakable, they are not powerful. You're being compared to a jar of clay. It isn't complimentary. Right? You you are useful for common things. Maybe even holding refuse. Okay? You are weak and breakable and ordinary. You're dirt. That's what a jar of clay is. You follow? And God puts the treasure of the gospel in you. And you. Here's Paul's point. God does this powerful work. He does this powerful work. He entrusts the gospel to us to openly state for the exact purpose that folks will know that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If we can find methods to guarantee powerful outcomes, then the faith of men would rely upon us but it's precisely through the use of ordinary means by jars of clay like us that God is shown to have the surpassing power. That God is shown to have the surpassing power. Now, let me give you some implications to this. I just want to give you five of them. I had more, but I pushed some off till um, two weeks from now. First, first implication, we must be committed to, to exercising the ordinary means of grace. We must be committed to the faithful exercise of the ordinary means of grace. We must preach and teach the Word. We must pray. We must baptize and take the Lord's Supper. This is what the Lord has commanded us to do, and it is sufficient. It's sufficient. It's enough. When I met with the, the, the team in who, who the elders there who wanna, wanted to hire Russ, that we a couple of our elders went up there and met with them, with their elders, to talk about Russ, and they said, uh, "Well, the church is at this stage after this many years, and we'd love to see it grow and become more healthy, etc." What will Russ bring to the table to that end? And I said, "Well, if you're if you're looking for Russ to come in and be this charismatic personality that draws large crowds and has a myriad number of ways to to just bring them all in." then look somewhere else. No offense, Russ. But if you're looking for a man to come and faithfully preach the Word of God and pray and visit your people and love them, then Russ is your guy. We must be faithfully committed to the exercise of the ordinary means of grace. Second, we must repudiate with extreme bias. Do you hear that? We must repudiate with extreme bias, all clever methods, and tampering with God's Word. Now, when I say repudiate with extreme bias, I don't mean post on Facebook about it, right? Not what I mean. It is not when I have found the right methodology to catalyze movements, then I am strong. Paul never says that. It is when I am done with human strength and rely fully upon the grace of God by the Spirit and through the Word, then I am strong. The Word is self-authenticating. That does not mean that everyone who reads or hears this book will be converted. It means that the Spirit will work through His Word to save God's people. The Word will do its work among those who have ears to hear, those among whom God has said, let there be light, to those whom the spirit has revealed the truth and we must believe that the problem is never with the truth but with the hearer never with the truth it isn't oh pastor if you just hold back that doctrine then maybe more people will believe no that's not true this is god's word no pastor has a right to hold back one single word of it nor does he have any right to judge which parts of it are important and which parts of it are unimportant. God, in his divine wisdom, saw fit to inspire every single word of it. Who are you, pastor, to question his wisdom? You teach it all openly without apology and without the sense that somehow this book is the problem with what's going out there. It's the hearer that's the problem. So you pray and you openly teach the truth. And you let God do his work. I don't know that we're committed to that. We must be. Third, we must repudiate all forms of preparationism. What in the world is preparationism? Must repudiate all forms of preparationism. What I mean by preparationism is the idea that we can prepare people the gospel by starting them out with more simple things. See, if we can just start them out with kind of a simple obedience, then we can slowly prepare them for the gospel. I actually heard a well-placed missionary and popular perspectives teacher who came to Bakersfield argue that if we teach people to obey, the veil will, and he used his hand this way, will slowly be removed from them. Just teach them to obey, as if daily commitment to obedience is some kind of solution to our problem. The problem with man is disobedience. The solution is not our own obedience, but faith in the one who was obedient in our place. The Christian life is the life of faith in the Christ. Faith is resting in the finished work of Christ, in trusting in him and relying upon Him. Faith is not works in any way. We do not prepare for faith through simple acts of obedience. We don't warm up for discipleship through being faithful in small things. We are radically converted. Radically meaning to the root, converted from death to life as the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us as a new creation. Listen to how Jay Gresham Machen addressed this nearly a hundred years ago, because nothing new under the sun. That's what he said. According to modern liberalism, faith, and he doesn't mean political liberalism, folks, he's talking about religious liberalism, Christian liberalism. According to modern liberalism, faith is essentially the same as making Christ master in one's life. At least it is by making Christ master in the life that the welfare of men is sought. But that simply means that salvation is thought to be obtained by our own obedience to the commands of Christ. Such teaching is just a sublimated form of legalism. Not the sacrifice of Christ on this view, but our own obedience to God's law is the ground of hope. In this way, the whole achievement of the Reformation has been given up, and there's been a return to the religion of the Middle Ages. What's talking about? When you say Christianity is, what would Jesus do? Do that. That's Christianity. That's what he's addressing, folks. When you say Christianity is following the ethical life of Christ, that's what he's repudiating. Now, please don't misunderstand. He isn't saying that those who have faith in Christ won't obey. He believes they'll obey. But they're walking in faith, and the fruit of that faith in Christ, by the working of the Holy Spirit, is their obedience. Their obedience is not at the root, it's the fruit. Fourth, all our preaching, all of our preaching must focus upon Christ crucified, must focus upon Christ crucified. We are not preaching the gospel by teaching folks principles to obey so that they, might, they might improve their lives. We are not teaching the gospel by preaching how God can improve their life circumstances. William Carey and his friends in the Serampore Forum of Agreement that they read three times a year together as a group of missionaries, wrote the following, William Carey being one of the father father of modern missions, that's what he said. It would be very easy for a missionary to preach nothing but truths, and that for many years together, without any well-grounded hope of becoming useful to one soul. The doctrine of Christ's expiatory death and all sufficient merits has been and must ever remain the grand means of conversion. This doctrine and others immediately connected with it have constantly nourished and sanctified the church. You must come to Christ crucified. Fifth, our great end in ministry or missions must be the salvation of the church. You hear that? Our great end in ministry or missions must be the salvation of Christ's church. That's his end. He died for his church. He's building his church. That's supposed to be our end. Our goal, please hear this, is not to transform society. That is not our end. That is not our goal. Social justice is not our goal. A better America is not our goal. Christianity is not a tool to bring about better politics or culture or societies. Let me conclude with this comment from Charles Hodge. 19th century Princeton theologian. Here's what he said. The great end of Paul's preaching, therefore, was to bring men to receive and acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and as the Supreme Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is the only proper end of preaching. It is the only way by which men can be made either virtuous or religious. It is the only way In which either the true interests of society or the salvation of souls can be secured. To make the end of preaching, the inculcation of virtue, to render men honest, sober, benevolent, and faithful is part and parcel of that wisdom of the world that is foolishness with God. It is attempting to raise fruit without trees. When a man is brought to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and to love and worship Him as such, then he becomes like Christ What more can the moralist want? Paul cared little for the clamor of the Greeks that he should preach wisdom and virtue. He knew that by preaching Christ, he was adopting the only means by which men can be made wise and virtuous here and the blessed hereafter. And to that blessed hereafter, we'll return in our next sermon. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to trust that your Son, our Savior and Lord, is powerfully at work by His Spirit through His Word. That we would trust that your Word is powerful, that we would make an open statement of the truth, that we would be convinced, committed to The fact that there is no method or technique that can create some sort of shortcut or end around that overcomes the problem of the sinfulness of man, but that we must make an open statement of the truth and pray that your spirit is powerfully at work to convert the hearts of men, to shine the light into their minds so that they might see no longer be blinded to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, knowing that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Amen.